All right. Um, if I have not met you, my name is Mark Thomas. I'm the college and young adult pastor at Lakewood Baptist Church about 30 minutes down the road. So if you take a left out of the parking lot and then just keep driving, you will pass our church on the right. And uh, so glad to, happy to be here with you guys and glad to be here uh, with y'all. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5. And from what I was talking to Keith and Eli, you guys have been in 1 John for a little bit, which is great. I get to wrap up 1 John with y'all. Um, but as you're turning there, I am a UNG grad, 2010, so it's a while ago. I don't know where you were at 2010. I was here on campus at 2010 walking in this gym, not the new one, but the old one, because that's all we had. We didn't have much when I was here. Um, walking in there and graduating, that was in me in May of 2010. So happy to be back. I think I came back last year one time, so I always enjoy coming back. I made a comment, too, actually before. No, I'm actually not going to say it. I'm going to pause, actually. I'm going I'm to refrain, backtrack. All right, 1 John chapter 5. I don't want to get myself in any hot water. So uh, 1 John chapter 5, I'm going to start with verse 6, and I'm going to read all the way through the end. We're just going to truck all the way through it, and then we're going to jump back to verse 6 and kind of backtrack and work our way through some of what 1 John 5 says. Okay, let me... We start in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say the one, <coughs> excuse me, I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we who are in him who is true is in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God of eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So as I was you know, asked to come and speak, and I know you guys have a rotation of people that come through. And like I said, I'm happy to be here. Uh, and then they texted this passage. I was like, oh, man, there's a lot to unpack 
in this passage. <laughs> there's a lot here. So I can't hit it all. So there's a few parts that I really want to just press in a little bit. So there's going to be some questions maybe you have from what it says, and I'm just not going to answer it tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and give you that on the front end and say, I may not address some of what we just read, and you may think, what does that even mean? I'm not going to address it. So I don't have time. But one thing, as I was thinking through this passage, uh, that would began to uh, bubble up within me in light of the times, it is extremely difficult to live as a Christian in today's world. Extremely difficult. It's probably one of the hardest things you will ever do. If you're trusting in Christ and you believe in him, following him is the most difficult thing you will do in your life. We can see that in here. And I think about why. Why is following Jesus one of the hardest things you can do in your life? Well, because now more than ever, you have as much information that you want to grab at your fingertips. You can, get, you can find whatever you want. You can find anything and everything. If you want an answer for it, Google it. And obviously, maybe do that in class. Hopefully it works out well for you, right? There's a vast amount of information that you can run to. So here's the, really the dilemma. How do we know what to listen to? How do we know what not to listen to? That's the problem, right? Because there's a lot of information, but is it good? Is it reliable? Even as you're listening to me right now, do you listen to me? Do you not listen to me? The harder question is not where to find the answer, but who should I listen to? Because there are plenty of answers. The world will have plenty of answers for you, but I would argue, and I think the Bible argues, you can't find the right answer if you don't know the right problem. If you don't have the problem, if you can't assess what's wrong in this world, you're going to land on a wrong answer. And we see this with other religions. They say, well, just do this. Just obey. Just follow these laws. Follow these rules. Follow these commands, and you'll be set. God will be pleased with you if you do X, Y, and Z. What's the difference in Islam, Hindu, Mormonism, Christianity? Majority of those other religions would say, just do these things and you'll be fine. Christianity has a different assessment of what the problem is. The assessment of the problem is that my sin, we can see it in 1 John chapter 5. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We've got a problem. And the problem is not, sin is not just external. It's not just everybody else's problem. See, that's what the culture says. That's what the mantra is. But the problem is that sin is not just your problem. Sin is my problem. And it's a much bigger problem than I could ever tackle. I can't just do X, Y, and Z to get myself out of the muck it's a massive problem. We just sang about a Savior that saves us because we've assessed the problem. We've assessed the problem correctly. I can't do this myself. Who can save me? I am unable. 
Right? That's the real problem, that I can't save myself. I'm unable to save myself. This concept of who do I listen to is not a new problem. With the vast amount of information we have, it's not a new problem. It's a very old problem. Which is why most of the New Testament letters are addressing some sort of correction with these believers. If you read Galatians, if you read Ephesians, there's address, Paul is addressing something that somebody's believing. See, it's not a matter of like listening to whatever information somebody has. It's a matter of the right answer. Right beliefs lead to... Right living. Right beliefs lead to right living. If you have the right problem, you can find the right solution. But I would say Christianity presses in a little bit too deep, too close to home. Begins to hurt. Begins to to wince. You begin to say, "Mm, I don't think that's right because you're attacking me. That's exactly what Christianity does. And this is part of the problem, what's going on in 1 John and what John is addressing. There's some ideas about who Jesus is that's leading to not following him. Wrong belief leads to wrong living. Right belief about who Jesus is leads to right living. And so I don't know where you are. I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what life is like behind closed doors. I don't know what's going on in your home, what's going on in your dorm room, your apartment. I have no idea. I'm wondering if you were like me when I was in college. Right belief leads to right living. My life in college did not lead to right living. So maybe that's why you're here. Maybe that's why you're here. You're just assessing the problem, maybe looking for some answers But I would say there is nothing more beautiful and nothing healthier for you than what this says. This is a gift of God to us. That's why we read it. Now, earlier, if you guys were here at BCM, I'm I'm assuming if you guys went through all of 1 John, here's some assessments as to what John is saying. Right belief leads to right living. He says stuff in 1 John chapter 1, if they claim to be without sin... Right? He's a liar. <laughs> wrong belief. You're not without sin. If you claim to be without sin, that's wrong belief. Those who claim to live with him must walk as Jesus did. Right? Right belief, right living. You do, we, we live as Jesus lived. We do as Jesus did. If you claim to be in the light but hate your brother, right? it says you're in darkness. Right belief, right living. 1 John 5, 6 through 21 helps us to understand some things that maybe we're faced with. Some here's some wrong thoughts that maybe some people that have studied 1 John a little bit more than I, so I kind of piggybacked off what they said, but here's some ideas as to what was going on and why John was addressing these things. One, some didn't see Christ as fully man. They didn't see him as man, right? That's part of the conversation about Jesus being water and blood, I mean, was he fully man, like real blood, or was he just kind of like here for a bit, and I don't know, maybe it was like a hologram type thing, and he wasn't quite real, and he says, no, it was actually blood, water and blood, which means his, his blood, as we saying, was sufficient enough, which is what we're going to talk about. 
Some of them didn't think he was sufficient enough, meaning, it's, yeah, it's like Jesus plus. It's like, yeah, you, you like Jesus, but you still got to do X, Y, and Z. And if you don't, then it's not enough. Some thought they were obligated to keep the commands. Obligated. Like, as if their life depended on it. And if they failed in the commands, where are they left? And some thought they could make a habit of sinning and be just fine. So that's where we get in uh, verse 6. I'm going to read it one more time. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. This is part of what he's arguing. And it's a little bit weird. We're not jumping full John chapter 5 context, but I'm just going to brush over that a little bit. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. What does it mean? We were thinking through, what does it mean when it says the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth? All right, we're thinking about the Spirit, right? It's capital S. It means it's the Spirit, Holy Spirit. It's all-knowing, all-present, all-seeing. Third person in the Trinity cannot lie. And what John chapter 5 is saying, the Spirit, who will not lie, who cannot lie. And if the Spirit lies, it's not a representation or it's not God. So that can't lie. It is as pure as pure can be. And the Spirit testifies that Jesus is who he said he is insufficient. So, and it says, like, you may have an argument from man. Like, we have eyewitness accounts from the word. Yes, you may have heard something, but what John is saying, if the Spirit says it, it is true. It's true. Why is it true? Who better to confirm for us than the one who knows you better than you? Who better to confirm for us than the one who knows Jesus better than you know Jesus? He's saying this is him. He's testifying to him. The Holy Spirit says, Jesus was man. Jesus is God. That's what he says. All right, but here's what I want to pause on tonight. And I want to dig, I want to press in a little bit as I was preparing uh, let me start in verse 10. You want to jump back with me. Right. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Right. That, that testimony word is like a, it's like a judicial word. Testify. Like, I can give account. I've seen it. I know. I've experienced it. I've felt it. It's not external from me. I know it. I've, I was there. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony of himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. This is telling us who he is. So now let's pause and go back to our original question. How do you know what to listen to? 
How do you know who to listen to? So I was talking to my wife. She shares this story all the time. I pointed at my wife. My wife is right there, actually. So it's not just some random college student over there. My wife is here. And I was talking to my wife, and she shares this story all the time. Um, when she was younger, uh, well, let me back up. She has three, two sisters, three total in the family. She's the youngest by like 10 years. And so the oldest one got married when you were... Eight, okay, great. Well, the new brother-in-law into the family gave my wife some advice. And he said, Hannah, the next time that you're in trouble and your mom's trying to grab your wrist or grab you, he said, just, just run around in circles. <laughs> and that's what she did. Did not turn out well, okay? Because when my mother-in-law grabbed Hannah's wrist, she just, like, racetrack, you know, around and around. And it was actually worse. And so then the story goes, how could Hank, how could he betray me and give me that kind of advice, right? She listened to what was given because she trusted him. How much more should we trust what the word says? Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Here's the part I want to dig in. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. I'm going to pause there for a second. You may know. That word is of certainty, assurance. I know. I'm fully, done, fully credited, fully paid. I know that this is certain. But I would beg and maybe argue that some of us are wrestling with that very question. Because maybe we're arguing with the same things John chapter, 1 John chapter 5 is saying. Was Jesus enough for me? Did he really exist? Was he really man? Did he really die? Did he really pay? Was it really enough? Do I know for certain? Do I know? Do we know that what Jesus did on the cross was enough to give us what verse 12 says? Whoever has the Son has life. Why does it sometimes then feel like we don't? Why does it sometimes feel like we are doing the same thing over and over and over again? Like when Jesus talks about how many times should, when Peter asks Jesus, and Jesus talks about how many times we should forgive, and, and Peter's assuming like, well, you know, the Old Testament says like at least three times, so I'm going to double it and then plus one. What well, Jesus, what about seven times? And Jesus looks at him and says, no, 70 times times seven. That's how many times you should forgive your brother. I would argue, maybe beg or pause for a second, if you were like me in my time in college, just an assessment, I don't know. I wrestled with this question because there was a pattern of sin in my life that was not, it was well over 70 times seven. And I began to ask this question. Did you ever stop? Forgiving me? Do you ever stop? Is it really 
like 70 times 7. If anybody does math, I think it's like 490. And if it goes to 491, no more. I'm done. Is that really what Jesus is saying? We have the ability by trusting in God's word, how to, knowing what to listen to, to know. Why do we know? How do we know that this is true? Well, I would argue that believers need the gospel just as much as unbelievers do. The believers need to know and repeat over and over and over again what it is. What's the value of the gospel? What's the truth of the gospel? How do we know that we have certainty that what he did was enough? So let me say this. I'm going to share a story. Jesus was perfect. His life was enough for you. We just sang a song you overcame. We didn't say I overcome. We said you overcame. You overcame. You did it for me. You were enough. I am not. He is enough, and he knew what you needed to pay for you. This is the beauty of the Holy Spirit, God, and Christ, the Trinity, working together. He knows. He's very much aware of all things. He sees all things, and he knew exactly what he was getting into when he died on the cross. He knew exactly what needed, the amount that needed to be paid when he died on the cross. And so there's a story of a czar in Russia years and years and years ago. I don't know if anybody's a history buff, so please don't fact check my story. It's not like 100%, but this guy named Nicholas was a czar of Russia, and what he would like to do is he would like to dress up in soldiers' clothes and go into some soldiers' quarters and kind of like disguise himself. So he became friends with one of these soldiers that worked for the government. He was a soldier, but he also had a job. And this guy was responsible for a ton of money. But this soldier, not Nicholas, the czar in, in his mask or whatever, this soldier had a gambling problem. And so he squandered away thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And then he squandered away some more. And he thought, well, maybe I'll just work my way back. And then I'll, you know, as every gambler does, they gamble more money to try and earn it back and... <clears throat> He got into a debt that was unpayable. He got into a debt that he could not afford to pay, and he knew there's a period of time within the year the auditor was going to come and check his ledger. And this soldier knew, I I'm doomed. If they find out what I've done with not even my money, but the government's money, they're going to actually kill me. So what he decided to do, he knew the day the auditor was coming, so he put a gun on his desk and he was writing in his ledger trying to find another way to make it work out. And he's going to kill himself at midnight. Well, he was so exhausted from all the emotional toil, he fell asleep. He fell asleep before midnight, so his light was on in his room. Well, Nicholas, this was apparently the night Nicholas liked to put on his soldier uniform and just waltz right around town and mingle with some of the soldiers and not know it was Nicholas Cesar. And he saw the light was on. And he went into the room. He saw his friend, he saw the ledger, and he saw what he wrote on the ledger. And the soldier wrote, who can pay this debt, question mark. Because he knew he couldn't pay it. 
And in his joy, Nicholas got a pen or, I don't know, a quill. I don't know at that time. <laughs> Went down the ledger, signed his name, Nicholas. Walked out. The next day, the amount of money that was owed showed up into his room. So when the auditor came, he paid the debt. Isn't that a beautiful picture, picture of what Jesus has done for us? There is a debt, and maybe for some of us it seems like it's accumulating, and maybe we have a problem with some obedience, and we just keep cycling back and forth, maybe going back to somebody else again, or going back to some abuse or substance again, or a person again, or we lie again, and we keep going back and back, and we begin to think, who can pay this debt? And in his joy, Jesus comes in with our ledger being way off. Comes in, signs his name, Jesus. He is rich enough, strong enough, sufficient enough, merciful enough, good enough. His blood was pure enough. For you. He signs his name on your ledger. How do we know we can have assurance? I write these things to you to believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Who can pay our debt? This is the beauty of Christianity. This is the beauty of Christianity of every other religion. No one can pay your debt. Only Jesus can pay your debt. And so part of the problem, I think, is that we don't have necessarily an obedience problem. Yes, we may have an obedience problem. I think for some of us, we have an idea of who Jesus is, that he's not sufficient enough. We have a sufficiency problem or a Jesus insufficiency problem. We've elevated our debt to be insurmountable. So what I want to do, I want to read Ephesians chapter 2, knowing this story about Nicholas and the Caesar and this soldier. I want to read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Some of you may know this, but I wanted to I want you to hear it through this lens. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. I'll give you a minute to turn there. All right. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in, walk in them. Two words in there, rich in mercy, rich, like beyond your comprehension, rich. And then in verse 7, so in the coming ages, he might show, display, put on the immeasurable riches, like it's beyond your ledger. What the Bible is saying in 1 John 5.13, you can know it. How? Why? Not because of what you have done, not because of our good works, but because he is enough. He was enough for you. And sometimes you say, how? How does that even work? How is that possible? He sees all things. He knows all things. He knew what he was getting in when he called you. He knew what he was getting in when he said your name. He knew what he was getting into. He knew the mess he was getting into when he said your name and you met him. He knew. And what it is, it's actually a display of his power, his might, his grace, his goodness, and his mercy. That's what we have to trust in. That's how we can know that our salvation is enough and it's secure, and you can stand and sing in just a minute in full assurance, God hears you and he loves you. But, let me, let me say this, it did not come free. It was not free. Our sin was placed somewhere. God is a just God, it was dealt with. The ledger was paid, but Jesus bore the cost. He took the debt. I trust, and we can trust and know he was enough. Our salvation depends upon he is enough. So maybe you've never heard. Maybe you've been trying over and over and over. Maybe you've never heard that's in Jesus' sufficiency that we are saved. And maybe if this is the first time for you, then I invite you to trust and have faith in this Jesus. Not a weak Jesus, a very mighty, powerful Jesus. It's what scripture points us to. Maybe you've been trying for so long and have never really rested because you're always striving to earn and deserve it. But a faith built on the shoulders of Christ's work for you is strong because it depends more on his firm grip of you than your, your firm grip of him. So I have, we have four children. And uh, Josie's eight. Levi's about to be seven. David just turned four. He's our foster son we just adopted a couple weeks ago. It's great. And then Lindy is two. And as we go to the beach or have gone to the beach They've all experienced the beach for the first time, but every time you hold their hand going into the water, right, they've got a pretty firm grip on my hand, right? Oh, the waves rock, right? And they're just, ah, you know. They've got a pretty firm grip on my hand. 
Here's the beauty of Christ. As we're going into the water, as we're taking steps into the water, eventually, this water is too much for our two-year-old, three-year-old. Their grip won't hold. But whose grip will hold? My grip. I hold them. I keep them. I hold them. I hold them fast. I hold them strong. I will not let them go. And so our salvation can rest, not on your grip of him, but of his grip on you. He holds you because he loves you. He paid a price for you. Isn't that a beautiful gift of God? And when we know, this is what it says later on. I'm going to wrap up with this. When it says, he says, any, just pray. He hears you. Of course, a father of this kind of love, why would he not hear that prayer and these prayers? And this kind of grace, this kind of Christ begins to shape and mold our prayers to want more of what he wants and not just what I want. And if he says no, I'm okay with that because you've got, he's got me. He holds me. But if you say yes, amen, great. God, you're good. If you say no, I trust you. It's his grip on us, not always our grip on him. How do we know this? Because he sent Christ. And God is good. So if this is the first time for you, maybe trusting in Christ's work for you and not your work for Christ. There are people here that want to talk to you. And maybe if your heart's pounding, you're thinking, I don't know. I mean, gosh, there's a lot of people I know in here. Believe me, I was the same thing. High school, for me, pastor's kid, holding on to the pew. I didn't want anybody else to know what was going on in my life, and I just gripped on, white-knuckled. I don't want anybody to know. I regret not standing up and saying anything. But it wasn't until I got to college where I came to faith and saw Christ's work for me, not my work for him. I trusted in his grip over me. That was enough for me to share. So maybe if this is the first time you're understanding it's his work for you. He's enough. He's strong enough. He's gracious enough. He's good enough. But it was costly. I beg you and plead you, please talk to someone. It's a beautiful gift of God. This is how good he is. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for truth we can see in your word, how precious we are to you. You would give your son to die and pay our debts. We know what we have done and we know where we have been and we know what we desire and hunger for and long for. But Father, I pray as it says at the end of 1 John, that we will not cling to idols. We will not find anything else pleasing, more pleasing than you, more satisfying than you, that you will be, as you say in John chapter 4, living water for our souls, refreshing, that we will be satisfied in you. Pray that we will not run to other idols and we will not let idols remain and stay in our life because they will tear us down crush us. I pray, Father, that we will 
run to you and understand your grace and mercy and that we will find our obedience, we'll find joy in our obedience to you. We'll find pleasure in obeying you. You are good, but I pray that it's rooted in the, in the gospel, in your work for us. There is rest. Lord, give us rest by knowing what you have done. And let that rest fuel us to go share this message with others. Let that rest in what you have done, your grip on us, not give us complacency or apathy for you, but give us urgency to go and share. May it's all in your name. Amen.